Cryptocurrency, even the name is cool. It's the money of the future. Decentralized currency that is instantaneous and transparent. No more waiting for checks to clear or banks to acknowledge deposits. But not all cryptocurrency is the same. Some forms of crypto, like Bitcoin, are actually derailing our efforts to address climate change. Big money is being made, and profits sometimes get in the way of logic and common sense. This is why we need to make sure our enthusiasm for what's new doesn't blind us to what's happening. This is why we need to be careful about cryptocurrency. And this is Green Street. Hello again, and welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of scientists, medical professionals, authors, journalists, engineers, activists, and occasionally even politicians. All here on Green Street to help you understand a bit more of what is going on around you and how you can protect yourself and your family and live a better, safer, and healthier life in this increasingly toxic world. Today on Green Street, we're going to talk about money specifically the new kind of money called cryptocurrency. As Patty said in her intro, it's the new kind of money that is making a few people really rich, but importantly, there's a downside. Not to cryptocurrency in general, but in a very specific kind of cryptocurrency based on proof-of-work data mining. You know those old coal-fired power plants in upstate New York that have been shut down over the past 20 years because they're so polluting? Well, they're back in business, purchased by private companies in the cryptocurrency business who need massive amounts of power to run their thousands of computers. And now those old power plants are running 24-7, polluting our air and our water. Also, a few investors in a very special type of cryptocurrency can make a fortune while the rest of us have to live with the pollution they're creating. If this sounds nuts to you, you're not alone. On today's edition of Green Street, Patty and I will be joined by New York State Assemblywoman Anna Kellis, who has sponsored and passed legislation to put a moratorium on this activity for a couple of years while we sort out our priorities and come up with better solutions. We're just waiting for the governor to sign it. We'll also hear from a Cornell professor who knows a lot about this and can help us understand a bit more of how this all works, or in this case, doesn't. That's all coming up on this edition of Green Street, but first, here's Patty with the Green Street News. What do you got for us today? Okay, my first article was written by Sharon Udison, and it was published in The Hill, and the title is Children at Particular Risk of Climate Change, Air Pollution Effects. Infants, children, and unborn babies are uniquely vulnerable to the impacts of both climate change and air pollution, experts argued in a new scientific analysis. While all children are at risk, the greatest burden from these impacts falls on those who live in socially and economically disadvantaged communities, according to the authors who recently published their evidence review in the New England Journal of Medicine. Co-author Carrie Nadeau, director of Stanford University's Sean N. Parker Center for Allergy and Asthma Research, said, quote, Every single child in the world is expected to suffer from at least one climate change-related event in the next 10 years. Nadeau co-authored the review article with Frederica Pereira, founding director of the Columbia Center for Children's Environmental Health at Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. 
Combing through dozens of research studies about the interplay between fossil fuel and childhood health, the scientists found that protecting children's health requires health professionals to understand the multiple harms that their patients are facing. One such harm includes extreme heat, with exposure to heat waves in utero linked to increased risk for preterm birth and low birth weight, hyperthermia and death in infants, as well as kidney disease in children, according to the article. Meanwhile, climate-related events have already contributed to more than 50 million children being forced from their homes worldwide. In the U.S. alone, more than 900,000 displacements, many including children, occurred in 2020 due to such disasters. As far as air quality is concerned, the scientists estimated that 7.4 million children in the U.S. were exposed to lung-damaging wildfire smoke every year between 2008 and 2012, a number that has only risen in recent years as such fires have become more frequent. Globally, about 1 billion children are exposed to very high levels of air pollution, which has become strongly linked to increased risks of infant mortality, adverse birth outcomes, respiratory illnesses, developmental disorders, and cognition issues, the researchers stressed. Developing countries are confronting ongoing climate change-related food insecurity issues, leading to a sharp rise in malnutrition that is stunting both physical and mental development. Amid a warming climate, the U.S. has encountered a considerable increase in Lyme disease, with the highest rates occurring in children, while the infection of pregnant individuals with Zika virus can lead to microcephaly and severe brain malformations. Examining all of these climate-induced harms to children, the scientists also emphasized the disparities that exist among different populations. Quote, Climate change and air pollution are exacerbating existing socioeconomic and racial and ethnic inequities in children's health that are associated with structural racism. Combined with poverty-related stress, injustice, and lack of access to health care, it adds up over a lifetime and leads to worsened health effects and shortened lifespans. The researchers emphasized the need for simultaneous action through both adaptation and mitigation efforts to protect children from today's climate hazards and get to the root of the issue by decreasing greenhouse gas emissions. Some adaptation measures they cited included providing clean water to families encountering drought and water contamination, as well as integrating early warning systems of floods and air pollution. Also important is offering shade where children play. Addressing inequality, the author said, will require climate-specific efforts to be paired with broader social health care and sanitation programs. The food problem from climate change is going to end up being the, well, maybe not the biggest part of this, but that's a, you know, it's going to be a gigantic problem. Yeah, there was another article that I'm, that I'm not reading today Uh-oh. that was about um, the impact on plants and that at some point by mid-century, there will be severe food shortages because plants will not be able to grow well. Yeah. And kids always getting the short end of the stick, of As course. always. Yeah. As always. Okay. What else you got? Okay. So here we have one. We've talked about this quite a bit. This is PFAS. Um, and this is actually from the Environmental Working Group, published in their, on their website. And it is EPA, toxic forever chemical levels in drinking water should be much lower. The Environmental Working Group applauds the Environmental Protection Agency for proposing new lifetime health advisories, or LHAs, that suggest levels of four forever chemicals known as PFAS in drinking water should be significantly lower. 
The EPA announced updated LHAs for PFOA and PFOS, the two most notorious PFOS. It also announced new LHAs for PFBS and GenX. LHAs provide information on contaminants in drinking water that can harm people throughout their lives. The four LHAs are 0.004 parts per trillion for PFOA, 0.02 parts per trillion for PFOS, 10 parts per trillion for Gen X chemicals, and 2,000 parts per trillion for PFBS. Previously, the EPA had set an LHA for PFOA and PFOS of 70 parts per trillion. Think about that for a second. They are now advising 0.004 parts per trillion, whereas previously it was 70 parts per trillion. EPA's new health risk assessment for these PFAS chemicals is a dramatic departure from the agency's original position and a stark reminder just how toxic they are to human health at very low levels. EWG estimates that more than 200 million Americans are drinking water contaminated with PFAS. PFAS are toxic at very low levels and have been linked to serious health problems, including increased risk of cancers and harm to the reproductive and immune systems. The chemicals are used to make water, grease, and stain repellent coatings for a vast array of consumer goods and industrial applications. The EPA has committed to setting an enforceable drinking water standard for PFOA and POFOS by the end of 2023, but EWG is urging the agency to move faster to set the drinking water standard for these PFOS and quickly set standards for others, including PFBS and GenX. Melanie Benesh, attorney for Environmental Working Group, said, quote, The EPA must move quickly to set limits on industrial discharges of PFAS into the air and water, require testing for sludge that may be contaminated with PFAS, immediately designate PFOA and PFOS as hazardous substances under our federal cleanup laws, and properly dispose of PFAS wastes. Last week, EWG also released a federal PFAS report card that tracks dozens of PFAS-related actions the Biden administration has committed to take, or actions required by Congress, and finds several actions are behind schedule. Consumers can also take steps to reduce their exposure to PFAS, such as installing water filters, avoiding stain and water-resistant products, and avoiding other household products made with PFAS. Manufacturers should move quickly to phase out non-essential uses of PFAS, such as PFAS in carpets, clothing, cosmetics, cleaners, and other goods we bring into our homes and businesses. Yeah, and there you go. PFAS, just unbelievable in everything. And listen, look at the reductions that they're, right. that they're proposing. I mean, Fantastic. there were like six articles this week <clears throat> about PFAS. This was important because the EPA is silent on yeah. so many of these super important classes of chemicals. I mean, this whole class of chemicals has to be just banned for consumer use. Well, good luck. There are industries that are dependent on them for I all know. their processes. I know. I they're, know. They're hooked on, hooked on PFAS. I know. Okay. What else you got? So I have another one written by Gerald J. Heindel. And just to say who he is, he's a retired program administrator from the National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences. This was published on EHN's website, Environmental Health News. The title is The Medical Community is Missing a Major Piece of the Obesity Puzzle. What makes us fat? 
The current medical view is that obesity is due to overeating and insufficient exercise. That is like saying alcoholism is due to drinking too much. For most obese people, reducing body weight to within the normal range is not accomplished by simply eating less and exercising more. Current approaches focus on intervention once someone is obese, using diets, drugs, and surgery. If these approaches were working, there would be a decline in obesity rates. Yet, obesity continues to increase at alarming rates worldwide, especially in children and minority communities. A new approach is needed. There is good news and bad news about preventing obesity. The bad news is that we are all exposed to synthetic chemicals that can promote obesity, such as bisphenols, phthalates, flame retardants, and perfluorinated chemicals in our environment and in common household products. Exposure to these obesogens at any time of life can increase weight gain. The most sensitive time for obesogens to affect weight gain is when a pregnant mother is exposed and the chemicals cross the placenta and into the developing fetus. Obesogens disrupt the normal development of adipose or fatty tissue, as well as the liver, gastrointestinal tract, brain, and tissues involved in regulating metabolism. These permanent changes lead to increased susceptibility to developing obesity later in life, making it easier to gain weight and harder to lose it and to keep the weight off. Obesogens can increase weight even without increased food intake because they can alter metabolism and promote increased storage of calories. The good news is that we know there are obesogens. We know a number of them by name, and we know where their exposures come from and how many act to increase weight gain. Reducing exposure should lead to decreased incidence of obesity. Decreasing human exposure to obesogens is a viable strategy to prevent obesity, particularly in pregnant women of childbearing age and children through adolescence. Focusing on prevention is a timely and critical component of any public health approach to stopping the obesity pandemic. Most medical practitioners wait until someone is overweight or obese and then try to mitigate the weight gain and associated diseases. Whatever the reason for this inappropriate focus, their ethical obligations as healthcare providers require that clinicians empower patients to make informed decisions about their health. It is time to have clinicians, particularly in the OBGYN field, become knowledgeable about obesogens, how and when they act, and how to reduce exposures to educate their patients. It is also critical that pediatricians explain to mothers how to reduce exposure to obesogens in babies, children, and adolescents during sensitive times when the metabolic system is developing. Once the clinical community understands the importance of preventing obesogen-induced obesity, we hope this acceptance will stimulate policymakers and regulators to take action to regulate and remove these harmful chemicals from products. How many times do we talk about removing harmful chemicals from products? It's every show, Patty. Every it's, show. It's every show and practically every news article you read. How do we get these chemicals out of our environment that are wreaking havoc? chemical industry is making a fortune, selling these chemicals to all of these manufacturers. We're going to be talking later today about how hard it is to resist making a profit, even when what you're doing is causing trouble for everybody else. It's just, you know, that's mankind. We're going to soldier on, though. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Patty. Done and done. It must be hard to resist making a fortune. 
I mean, I wouldn't really know personally, but I can imagine that when you have the means to spend a fortune to make an even bigger fortune, it must be, at least for some people, very appealing. I can only imagine that's what's going on in the minds of people who are currently unleashing an environmental nightmare on the people of upstate New York and beyond, who have invested tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in a new form of cryptocurrency which uses proof-of-work data mining to generate enormous profits. To generate those profits, the companies need to assemble giant farms of computers to run calculations. And those computer farms need fantastic amounts of energy to keep them running all day and all night as they race to complete their calculations. To supply the amount of energy they need, they can't just plug into the nearest outlet. Even a giant power cable directly from the power plant from the computer farm won't be good enough. No, these computer farms have to be located in the power plant itself where the computers literally consume all of the power generated by the plant. Now, it takes years to build a power plant, so what should investors do in the meantime? Well, the people who own the computer farms discovered that there were several old coal-burning power plants in upstate New York that had been shut down over the past few years because they're so polluting, and they decided to buy them, fire them back up, bring in their computers, and get to work using their computer farms to make money. Sounds like a movie, right? But this is actually taking place right now. And if it sounds crazy to you, it also sounded crazy to New York State Assemblywoman Anna Kellis. She decided maybe it was time to take a break from this madness and see if we can come up with better ideas for supporting cryptocurrency. Patty and I spoke with Anna Kellis last week to learn more about her legislation, and we asked her if, given her background in environmental studies and biology, as well as a four-year stint as an ecological guide in the Amazon basin and earning a doctorate in nutritional epidemiology at UNC Chapel Hill, if she ever expected to end up as a member of the New York State Assembly. Here's our interview with Anna Kellis. I was a county legislator before being a state assemblywoman, and I was the chair of housing and economic development uh, for Tompkins County legislature. And we had or have a power plant that closed its doors, uh, partly because it was a coal fire plant, uh, partly because it was the antiquated old single cycle turbine technology, and partly because they had a fire in one of the stacks. So all of that combined, they shut that facility down, and it was purchased by a company, a tech company, that wanted to build a data center on the property. And that was the first time that I heard about cryptocurrency mining and started doing research on what is the difference between a data center and a cryptocurrency mining operation. Um, and just to give people a sense, um, all, if you put the energy used by all the data centers on the planet, collectively, they use less energy than the energy that is used by the Bitcoin mining operations. That's not even all cryptocurrency mining. Bitcoin uses more energy than Google, Facebook, and Amazon collectively, globally. So that just gives a sense of the amount of energy. And then I started studying the technology. So I came into the state legislature aware of the massive amount of energy explicitly used by cryptocurrency mining. And then uh, being on the legislature, I was tracking the Greenwich facility on Seneca Lake. And that was an old, defunct, retired power plant that had gone bankrupt in 2012. So it was no longer producing any greenhouse gases at all. 
and it was purchased by Greenwich and turned back on, I think, in 2018 or 19. They started mining in 2020, I think, 2019-2020, added that to their operation. And uh, once they added cryptocurrency mining, the facility switched to running 365 days out of the year, 24-7, and has a permit to pull in up to 130 million gallons of water from the lake a day at about 40 to 60 degrees temperature, and a permit to release it back into a Class C trout stream at up to 108 degrees temperature in the summer. Uh, and trout show signs of stress at about 70 degrees temperature and increased death after that point. So there had been concerns from, of course, fishermen in the area, hunters in the area, uh, the facility does, of course, then increase the temperature of that stream that runs back into the lake. And this area has seen massive exponential increases in harmful algal blooms. And one of the risk factors for harmful algal blooms that are toxic to both humans and animals is temperature, temperature and increase sure. in phosphorus and nitrogen. Yeah. Right. So those are some of the risk factors. The other concern, of course, is that the largest industry in that area is the agritourism industry. That's about three to four billion dollar industry and many local small businesses that employ over 60,000 people. The cryptocurrency mining industry, in comparison, you know, provides a, a very very small number of jobs because the algorithm that these computers are running is very simple. So it doesn't require a huge number of engineers, like say a data center that's doing cloud storage plus running software, right, would require. So the facility has about 40 to 50 jobs versus the 60,000 jobs, over 60,000 yeah. jobs. So you know, the concern about the sound pollution, the significant increased water pollution, air pollution, greenhouse gas emissions from the facility was very concerning, as well as the significant increase uh, in the energy being generated for the exclusive use of, you know, cryptocurrency mining operation that is a publicly traded company that isn't even here in New York. So they were saying they were getting um, carbon credits to offset and therefore they're net zero, but those carbon offsets can be anywhere in the world and they can be, um, you know, the junk credits, which is often what the cryptocurrency mining industry buys. Um, and those are fake carbon credits that are credits for infrastructure that was built decades ago. And so it isn't actually creating new infrastructure to offset their existing, uh, their, their added greenhouse gases. They call it sweeping the floor. There's actually a term for it they use. Uh, you know, and their their yeah. theory wow. is that if they yeah. buy, you know, all of the the, the junk credits, they, they yeah. sweep the floor, then everyone else will have to do the right thing. But of course, what it has actually done is create a lot more junk credits on the market. So you know, there are a lot of issues, and that was very much the inspiration of my legislation, which is very much a scalpel in that. It focuses on creating a two-year pause on the purchase and reactivation of fossil fuel-based power plants for the purpose of cryptocurrency mining. And then during those two years requires the Department of Environmental Conservation to uh, do a full generic environmental impact statement 
evaluating the impact of the cryptocurrency mining industry on our ability to reach our climate goals with respect to greenhouse gases, air quality, and water quality. So it's um, very narrowly focused because it does not affect any cryptocurrency mining that uses exclusively renewable energy, for example. It doesn't affect any cryptocurrency mining that is plugged directly into the grid, for example. It doesn't affect any boutique mining, nor does it affect anyone's ability to buy, sell, use, or invest in cryptocurrencies in the state. Uh, so that's what I mean by being a scalpel that allows us to prevent the refiring of our fossil fuel-based power plants that are the least efficient in the state and send us in the wrong direction while we study the industry. Right. And interestingly, the commissioner of the DEC, Basil Segos, has basically agreed with you right. that, that Greenwich has not shown compliance with New York's um, climate law. So how are they helping, if, if at all? Uh, the the DEC. Yeah, are they weighing in? I mean, they're part of the executive branch, well, right? Yeah. So, yeah. It's very concerning. Um, the permit renewal by the DEC, the air and water permit renewals were due last spring. They completed them during the summer. Uh, there was an initial review by the DEC, and that review, as you said, was uh, the statement was at this time it does not comply with the CLCPA. Uh, there was then a long comment period, public comment period and public hearing. And the, the final findings were due at the end of the year, at the beginning of the beginning of this year. Mm-hmm. And about 4,000 comments were submitted. And the excuse was given that they had to extend the deadline because they had to have time to review those, uh, those comments. Since then, Columbia University has foiled, I think it was Columbia, those responses and found that over 98% of them urged the DEC to not issue a renewal permit. It has since been delayed for another two months. uh, And now the deadline for uh, their final findings will fall two days after the primary. So it's it's a bit concerning uh, that the can keeps getting kicked down the road because they have been able to more than double their operation in the time that the final conclusion on these permits has been will be issued right so they started at just over i think 7500 computers they are now well over uh, 15,000, and their goal is 30,000 they may be at that 30,000 goal um, at this point um, and these are these are operating 24/7 all of these computers that are mining 24/7. Right? So that was right. the inspiration of of this bill because what we discovered in a cursory Google search of proposed operations in upstate New York. Uh, so these are proposed operations, operations that are already under construction or operations that are already fully complete and uh, in existence. You put all of those together, by the end of this year alone, we will have somewhere between 1.3 and 1.6 gigawatts of cryptocurrency mining in upstate New York. Uh, And that's the equivalent of the energy it would take to fuel about 750,000 homes or three times the size of the second largest city in the state, which is the the city of Buffalo. So that is the amount of energy that's being diverted to these large scale corporate enterprises 
that, you know, some of them are, are publicly traded. So their headquarters aren't even here in New York. So all the profits are leaving the state, not all of them, but for those that are publicly traded, they are leaving the state, right? And some of the largest are, which actually brings me to another point, which is this bill is exclusively focused on cryptocurrency mining, which is synonymous with proof of work. There are at least 14, 15 other forms of validating cryptocurrencies, and none of the others are competitive in nature, like proof of work is. So proof of work is that everyone is directly competing with each other to solve a a, mathematical equation that is not truly a mathematical equation. What it is, is a random series of digits. And the reason why that's important is because there is literally no software that you can create that would give you an edge over someone else to solve that mathematical equation because it is by nature random, which means that the only thing you can do is crunch numbers. So the more numbers you can crunch, the greater your likelihood of answering the equation first, which means that the person with the higher computational capacity ability right the will more be the, the one right yeah. so so these large corporations have formed because they've sort of gamed the system they've said okay there's x number of coins that are can be won at any one point in time there are x number of you know computers that are out there if we have x number per proportion of the total volume then we can guarantee that we will get x number of dollars for any one point in time generally speaking statistically speaking right so you can kind of game the system if you know the parameters that you're working within and that's what these large corporations have done and so initially They were boutique miners, right? They'd have one or two computers, maybe 10 computers, but wealthy people know how to make money, right? And so they figured out, well, if we buy a ton of the really, really high power ones, then we can actually make all the money. So the worst part about all of it is that proof of work based cryptocurrencies are some of the most consolidated currencies on the planet. So they say, you know, this is about democracy. This is democratizing wealth but not the proof of work based ones because right. of the fact that they are competitive they, in nature. They're competitive and, and they, the have, to, they have to have this investment. Of course, mm. exactly. they get richer as always. Mm. You're listening to Green Street, the environmental health show, Patty and Doug Wood. And our guest today is New York State Assemblywoman, Anna Kellis. So tell me, tell me how this fits into the CLCPA and what damage is it gonna do? How far back does it push us in New York State if we allow this thing to go on? Right, well, it's a great question. So there have been some sort of back of the napkin um, analyses that some of the environmentalists have done. Let's just take the 1.3 to 1.6 gigawatts, right? That's just this year, by the end of this year that would that is proposed or is already in operation. If that is all in place, we would need to increase our total renewable energy infrastructure that we estimated that we would need in order to get our entire state onto renewable and off of fossil fuel. We would need to in- increase that by approximately 60, 70%, right? Wow. So wow. that's just what is being proposed or in operations. So that would be by the end of this year, let alone next year, right? So the the thing that concerns me about that, let's just talk about the solar. 
one of the best siting places, most efficient siting places for solar is agricultural land. Mm-hmm. So they're in direct competition. And as climate change gets worse, the Northeast is going to more and more and more be the breadbasket, not only for the Northeast, but for the rest of the entire country. Right. And if we are converting it to solar so that the cryptocurrency mining operation can divert it to their industry, then, then we're directly competing with the creation of food as climate change uh, you know, increases. And the other is that wind infrastructure, uh, anybody who's studied industrial wind farms require a certain topography and wind speeds in order to be efficient, sufficiently efficient. Right. efficient exactly. Right? exactly. Right. Yep. And there, you know, that is not unlimited. You know, so you'll hear people say, well, if you put cryptocurrency mining uh, near renewable energy infrastructure, you will increase the rate of return on your investment and then you can build more. So actually it'll speed up the production of renewable energy infrastructure and help us transition off of uh, off of fossil fuels. Fossil fuel. But if but- it's simultaneously significantly increasing our base load at the same time, then it's a zero sum game, right? We're, it, it doesn't actually increase the rate in which we're reaching our actual goals. Yeah, right. And yeah. that's the concern. And we also are, you know, severely taxing our our hydroelectric infrastructure. So if we are diverting hydroelectric infrastructure to uh, you know, private or publicly traded cryptocurrency mining companies, then that infrastructure is not available for you know, our current needs, getting our current load off of, uh, off of fossil fuels, and it is already taxed as it is. So there are a lot of concerns that raise the question for me, can we reach our climate goals if we allow for an unfettered expansion of the cryptocurrency mining industry, particularly in our old retired fossil fuel-based power plants. At the least, I would say that not turning back on our fossil fuel-based power plants is probably a good idea. At the least, right? Because the ones that are retired are the ones that are the least efficient and they could no sure. longer compete on the open market, which is why they're retired. Yeah. So, so not only are they adding fossil fuel-based power plants backed onto the grid for their private purposes, but they're doing the least efficient ones. They're the single cycle turbine power plants versus the dual cycle turbines. So yeah, these, are the, old, these are the old ones, which these are the old ones. ones. Yep. Right. So, Anna, tell me a little bit about your negotiations with other members in the Assembly and, and, and the Senate. Somehow you were able to get this over the finish line. Uh, what were the most convincing arguments that you were using? Well, the most important argument is because, you know, the, the industry is really trying to instill a lot of fear that this is an anti-tech bill, that this is a job-killing bill, that this will um, destroy uh, cryptocurrency industry in New York and send it everywhere else, right? Like huge fear-mongering. So a lot of it was, this is not a ban. They would like you to think it's a ban. A ban is permanent. This is a two-year pause. This is a moratorium. This is sensible. Right. This is not anti-tech because it still allows for all of the cryptocurrency mining that is not in power plants. It does not affect any of the trading, buying, selling, using cryptocurrencies. It allows for 
all of the innovation that we could ever want. It still literally allows New York to be the cryptocurrency capital of the world. This is what it does. This is what it doesn't do. So, so much of the work that I did was educating people on what blockchain technology is. Very simple. It is a decentralized, very interesting and exciting mechanism of transmitting information that is very efficient, instantaneous, transparent, right? It is incredibly innovative. That is the platform on which cryptocurrencies are built. And then I explain to people what cryptocurrencies are. They are a digital exchange system of currency or wealth using this decentralized platform. So it's instantaneous and it's transparent and people can do it without bank accounts. There are good and bad things, right? There's no third party oversight. There's no authority oversight. The system is managed by people within the system. But it is that transparent uh, in that there is a ledger, right? And people can see the money moving through the system and that it is very instantaneous. The thing that I wanted people to understand is that the crux of the issue is simply in the mechanism used to validate those transactions. Because anyone would want in a system that's trading money that you would have some mechanism to validate, of course, right? You want the money to actually be there if you're gonna trade, right? And so it's exclusive just to that. And it is exclusive only to the version that's proof of work. And so the idea that it is only that, that it is so targeted just to that, and on right. top of sure. it, to hear right. that it is not an anti-tech or an anti-cryptocurrency bill, and on top of that, to hear that there are alternative ways to validate transactions that use less than a half of 1% of the amount of energy that proof of work uses, is what was such a convincing factor. You mean we can do the same thing? We can be innovative? We can be the, the leaders in this if we choose to and not use any of the energy and not destroy our planet and not destroy all of our jobs upstate and all the other industries that are potentially negatively impacted by this new mining industry? Oh, well, that's much more simple than I thought. Yeah, we're in. Right? That's, that's the process sure. that's so important. You've been listening to Green Street, the environmental health show, Patty and Doug Wood, and our guest today has been New York State Assemblywoman Anna Kellis. Several months ago, before Anna Kellis's legislation had been passed, we had the opportunity to speak with Cornell professor Anthony Ingraffia about cryptocurrency data mining in New York State. Dr. Ingraffia taught structural mechanics, finite element methods, and fracture mechanics at Cornell University for many years. Here's part of our previous interview with Dr. Tony Ingraffia. Up until about two years ago, uh, about 80 to 90 percent of all the cryptocurrency operations on the face of the earth were being performed in China. Very little scattered around a couple of other countries, some of which would be surprising <laughs> countries you wouldn't expect to be involved in something like this. But in about two years ago, the Chinese government said, wait a minute, we're not going to do that anymore. We don't have control over cryptocurrency by definition. Cryptocurrency is meant to be a private form of currency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in a communist society, you don't have private things. 
Right. So cryptocurrency operations have been effectively banned in China. And what happened is that it overflowed around the world, mostly oh. to the U.S. of A. I see. So we had a phenomenon where tens of thousands of these high-performance supercomputing modules were leaving China <laughs> because they were purchased by investment firms in the U.S. and deployed in what I call private power plants. Okay. Wow. okay. So the second part of your question, is it growing? Yes. Uh, how many such power plants are currently operating in the U.S.? A dozen, maybe. One in New York State. But there are proposals to restart currently abandoned or mothballed power plants for the specific purpose of becoming private power plants just for the use of cryptocurrency mining. And that takes us back to the issue of, oh, so you're generating electricity from these power plants for a private purpose. Is that electricity dirty? We wouldn't be having this conversation, my opinion, if all the cryptocurrency mining operations on the face of the earth took an oath. And the oath is we will use only green electricity that we ourselves generate. Here's mm -hmm. another complexity. Mm -hmm. There are cryptocurrency mining operations that are claiming that they're green because they are buying green energy from the grid. Think about that for a minute. Is that the best use of green energy? We don't have enough of it right now, right? right? Yeah. We really like to run our entire industrial complex, our entire residential complex, our entire transportation complex on green energy. But if it's being diverted for private use for a profit-making enterprise, in my opinion, that's a really stupid way to use a very, very scant resource at this point. But if these facilities were to say, we're going to build our own wind farms, our own solar farms, we're going to build our own hydroelectric dams, and all the electricity going in to our computers and our air conditioners will be green as can be. Fine. It's their money. Yeah. They're yeah. not distracting. You know, it, it, from another point of view, is, is that a good use of capital investment? It's their capital investment. It's not That's yours. Right. It's, it's not, not taxpayer dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, dollars. so let me ask you this question. So are we talking about bringing back some of these shuttered coal plants and 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 yes. really? Okay, yes. coal and gas yes. and oil they're they're all being yes. brought back to serve these private yes. private industry. Yes. Wow. Yes and yes. Wow, wow and wow. So yes, there is a facility that's already up and running in Pennsylvania that is using what they call waste coal. Uh, coal that was judged to be of too low a quality to actually be burned to generate electricity for the public good. And a company has purchased that former facility and is burning waste coal to mine cryptocurrency. Oh my! God. There is a facility 25 miles from where I'm sitting in upstate New York, which had been a coal-fired power plant. It went out of operation about 10 years ago, was shuttered, put into mothballs. Private investment firm bought it up for pennies on the dollar because it was basically worthless and got a grant from New York State to build a natural gas pipeline to the plant. And they restarted the plant a few years ago with the alleged purpose of becoming a public service, a utility. In other words, they had taken an old coal firepower plant, refired it with natural gas, and they wanted to create electricity for the grid. They did that for about a year or so, and then pulled a fast one, my words. They then applied to New York State to say, oh, we're changing our business model. We don't want to be a public utility anymore. 
We want to be a pseudo public utility. We want to spend most of our electricity crypto mining and a little bit of it will still go out to the public good. Wow. So, so you really can't shut us down because we're obviously a, a public good. Right. But wait a minute, you, you lied. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. got a permit. <laughs> you, got a, you got a grant from this. They got a grant because they said they were going to yes. be a public utility. It was very, very, yes. very. Taxpayers that's dollars. Right. What? Taxpayers You know that they were, were, they were sitting around the boardroom and figuring out this strategy. And yeah. Yeah. Oh, those dummies in Albany can't see through our business plan. <laughs> wow. we'll, we'll pull fast one and they're looking left and we're going right. Zig and Zach, right? You're listening to Green Street with Patty and Doug Wood, and our guest today is Dr. Tony Ingrafia, former professor and teaching fellow at Cornell University. So, uh, yeah. So, and, and what's worse, in this specific instance, I don't want to be too New York-centric here, but these same issues are going to arise at, mm-hmm. at different levels and different rates around the world. Yeah. This particular facility is, to use your words, Doug, growing rapidly. It, it has a, a capacity of generating 106 megawatts of electricity, which by modern standards is not large. You know, a modern large nuclear power plant generates 10 times that much, a thousand megawatts, but it's not small either. Mm. Okay, and they're using natural gas and they're using a generator that was a remnant from when the plant opened in the 1950s. Mm. So it's ancient technology. I've done the calculations. It's the dirtiest possible way to do cryptocurrency mining because it's the least efficient way of mm. doing it. It would be better for them to be burning coal again. Oh God. Than for them to be burning natural gas Jeez. in this plant. That's how dirty this plant is. Mm. Some legislators have proposed moratoria uh, for such efforts in New York State. Of course, the the barn door is open. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this plan is already in operation, but it needs a air permit, what's called an air permit from the New York Department of Environmental Conservation. Its per- current permit, which was issued when they claimed they were going to be public utility, mm-hmm. expires. And they're applying for a new permit and they haven't changed their tune. And so the New York DEC has to make a decision, which will obviously be influenced by politics as to whether to allow them to continue to operate in their current condition or whether DEC will shut it down and say you can't operate or you can operate but under these restrictive conditions or fill in the rest with politics. Because money talks, as you know. Sure. Money talks and everything. And there's a lot of money involved. Here. Oh, sure. One coin, one Bitcoin. This place happens to mine Bitcoins. It's a form of cryptocurrency is currently worth close to $60,000. And the last time I looked in the last month, they had mined about 80 coins. So you do the math, 80 times 60,000, that's you know half a million dollars worth of- Bitcoin. Bitcoins that mm-hmm. they created by burning natural gas and running those computers at our climate change expense. Well, I was going to ask, what options does government have? And and does this fall primarily under state control, or is this something that we need federal action on? Well, it's always a great question. <laughs> Anything having to do with fossil fuels, it's so obvious that the federal government should step in and yeah, they need say, to. look, here, here are the requirements for safe operation. But as in all things fossil fuel, it falls to the states, and then you have a free-for-all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the usual 
uh, distribution of pros and cons among the states, uh, depending upon how much of this is actually happening in the state and the political influence of the relevant lobbies. So it's mostly going to be state. And in places like New York or California, where you have hopefully <laughs> reasonably progressive and climate sensitive regulation, you would say, here's my example. So you want to mine Bitcoins in New York State. Okay. And you want to do that by providing electricity of your own doing. Here is the limiting number. I'm going to give you a number and then I'll explain what it is. The number of pounds of CO2E that we're going to allow you to emit into the atmosphere per megawatt hour you're using. That's the controlling number. And I'm going to make that point as clear as I can next Wednesday to all the politicians and regulators in Albany, because that's the control. When New York State decided that it really needed to shut down all the coal-fired power plants, they couldn't legally say, if you're burning coal, it's illegal, shut down. They can't do that. But what they could do is say, we're going to limit how much CO2E we're going to permit you to put into the atmosphere per megawatt hour of electricity. And the coal-fired power plants could not meet that mm -hmm. criterion because they're too inefficient. Mm -hmm. They could do the same thing with this. They can say, hey, yeah, power plant on, on Seneca Lake, 25 miles from where I'm sitting, that's the least efficient, most dirty way possible of mining Bitcoins. So we're going to tell you, you can either clean up your act, get rid of your old equipment from the 1950s, and invest a few million dollars in modern, high-performance, high-efficiency equipment, and by the way, generate all your own electricity, or you don't get your permit renewed. Mm -hmm. That's my wish. That's what I'm going to recommend when I do testimony next Wednesday. But I'm not a politician. I don't carry money bags to Albany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we understand that. So I was very intrigued to see that Elon Musk, who's not usually on my, my favorite people list, uh, came out and, and said, look, we're not going to accept Bitcoin if you want to buy a Tesla. And I'm wondering if there's not an opportunity here and a, a growing concern among consumers to put a little pressure on companies not to accept Bitcoin because of its in terrible environmental footprint. Or they will only accept certain kinds of Bitcoin currency that they know to be produced in the greenest possible way. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that means mm -hmm. public awareness, right? Public education, which is what we're doing right here. Yeah. And then a, a, an appropriate legal and regulatory response state by state. And that's where New York is right now. Yeah. The, the greenest possible way would be for them to create their own energy source using renewables. Exactly. That's it. Yeah. That's it. That's it. And offsetting is not permitted. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's not, that's, no, that's, that's cheating. Yeah. You can't say we're green because we're, we're paying somebody else to be green. Exactly. Right. No, everybody has yeah. to be green at this point. Exactly. In time. We're out of time. We're out of time. To transfer, you know, you, you can't buy indulgences for your sins anymore. That Martin Luther told us that, you know, a couple hundred years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I'm an engineer. I'm not an economist. I'm not a global financial guru. I don't care whether cryptocurrency succeeds or doesn't kick or doesn't succeed. It's yeah. not part of my life. It will never be part of my life. I'm only concerned about the things we're talking about. What are the climate change impacts? 
Yeah. Are we talking about something that's eminently possible? I mean, could they come back and say, geez, we're not, we don't want to take 42 acres and build a solar farm. How reasonable is it to say you need to go with green energy? Depends upon how large an operation they want. So if yeah. they want a hundred megawatt operation, so that would be something like um, 50 very large wind turbines operating okay. uh, on okay. their site. Uh, okay. What would it cost to build a 50 wind turbine wind farm? <laughs> hundred million dollars. Well, um, you know what? They're the ones that want to bet on, on Bitcoin. Exactly. Yeah. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be betting on Bitcoin. No. Do you run your numbers? Show us your business plan. These companies are saying they're going to be around forever. Cryptocurrency is not going to go away. It's going to continue to grow. They want to continue to operate for foreseeable future for decades. So amortize your investment. Go off and build your own wind farm. Go, go off and build your own solar farm and more power to you. You've been listening to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts, including our special guests today, Dr. Anna Kellis, New York State Assemblywoman from Tompkins County in upstate New York, and Dr. Tony Ingrafia from Cornell University. If you missed any part of the show today, you can always catch it again on our website, www.greenstreetradio.com, where we archive all of our Green Street shows, and you can also sign up for our program alerts and send us comments on the show. We're always happy to hear from you. That's greenstreetradio.com, all one word. If you're a podcast person, you can also find us on Spotify. Just search for Green Street Radio and you'll find us. We hope you'll like and follow the show so we can build our audience and bring critical environmental health information to the nation. That's going to do it for our show today. Thanks again to our guests, New York State Assemblywoman Dr. Anna Kellis and Dr. Tony Ingrafia from Cornell University. Thanks also to our engineer, Michael G. Haskins, our indefatigable assistant producer, Ellen Weiniger, our webmaster, Allison Dunn, our business manager, Patricia Bridges, and our wonderful summer intern, Miss Kira O'Brien. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, please be safe, be well. We'll see you next time.